Hi guys, it's Karen. Sometimes I go by my real name, Kristen. Welcome to Rational in Portland, where we say everything you can't say in Portland. Welcome to Rational in Portland. Our guest today is Mike Marshall. Mike Marshall is the co-founder and director of Oregon Recovers. I heard Mike on OPB's Think Out Loud. He was recently on to talk about Measure 110, which is the drug decriminalization measure that Oregon voters passed handily in November 2020 to decriminalize the possession of small amounts of illicit drugs such as methamphetamine and heroin and diverted marijuana tax dollars to a grant program to fund what was sold to us uh, when we voted for this measure as treatment and recovery services across the state. As Mike will explain, many, if not most of us, think of treatment and recovery as drug treatment slash rehab centers and detox facilities. That's not where any of this Measure 110 money is allowed to go. Where is it allowed to go? Mike will talk about that. He will also explain that the lion's share of the money for the current budget cycle, $276 million, has failed to reach anyone. Mike will be the first to tell you that he's not a certified drug and alcohol counselor, but he is a person in recovery. And he'll also talk to us about his recovery journey. Stay tuned because you won't want to miss what Mike has to tell us. Mike Marshall, thanks so much for being here. You're part of the head of Oregon Recovers, is that right? Exactly. I'm the co-founder and executive director of Oregon Recovers. When we spoke on the phone before recording, I learned a lot about proper terminology right. and how to speak about these issues. And maybe we should lay that down as a framework for what we're going to talk about today so that we are on the same page and so that I know the terminology to use. So tell me what kinds of terminology um, you like to use around, I'll say addiction, but that may not be the right word. Right. No, that's absolutely the right word. Uh, addiction and sort of the public policy term for that is substance use disorder. From my perspective, they are one and the same. Um, and vocabulary is constantly changing, and so no one should feel bad about the vocabulary they use. But uh, in the context of, of our conversation today, the word addict is highly stigmatized. And so people in recovery prefer not to be referred to as addicts, more likely people who suffer from addiction. And addiction, despite the word addict being stigmatized, the word addiction is not, right? So um, I'm in recovery. I, my form of recovery is abstinence, so I also identify as being sober. But many people practice harm reduction, and that means they're in recovery, right? The, the very definition of recovery is their substances are causing negative consequences in my life. I take uh, deliberate action to, re to um, reduce that, and so I, I reduce the amount of substances I use, and as a consequence, my body recovers, my mind recovers, my soul recovers, and so that's recovery. So people listening, don't, don't think that you need to walk into a church basement and raise your hand and say, hi, I'm Mike, I'm an alcoholic. Um, you can instead talk to a therapist, find a support group to actually re go from 
a bottle of wine a night down to a glass of wine a night. And, and that's recovery, right? That's, that's a positive step forward in, in an effort to reduce the impacts of um, uh, uh, substances. So I just use the word alcoholic. Um, a lot of folks don't like uh, that being, being identified as an alcoholic. That's also stigmatized as well. However, in the support program that I'm in, I go into a meeting and I raise my hand and say, I'm Mike, I'm an alcoholic. But if you're talking with someone who's suffering from addiction, from alcohol, alcoholism, the way to refer to that is an uh, alcohol use disorder, uh, just like a substance use disorder, but a specific alcohol use disorder, one and the same, um, uh, or that they suffer from addiction. Um, if you use the term alcoholic, you're not, like, you're not harming them per se, but it's, it's a word we're trying to get away from. Tell us a little bit about your personal journey. How long did you suffer from substance use disorder? Sure. So uh, I started drinking when I was nine years old, the first time I got drunk. Uh, and then my family moved to Europe when I was in seventh grade when I was 11. And my dad would actually order a glass of wine for me or a beer for me in the restaurant because it was legal. I come from an Irish Catholic family. Booze was always around. You drank when you were happy. You drank when you were sad. You drank every day in between, right? And so it was just a big part of life. And so it's not it. It, it the look on your face was, oh my God, your dad bought you uh, alcohol at that young age. That was not necessarily unusual back in the seventies, right? Um, uh, my life transgressed. I had a terrific life in many ways, but um, I'm gay. I came out late. Uh, once I came out, I got involved with the party scene and started using ecstasy. And then next thing you know, I was using crystal meth. And I battled crystal meth addiction off and on for 10 years and, uh, and simultaneously with alcohol. And ultimately, when I was 46 years old, I woke up one morning and my family hadn't been in my life in years. I was unemployable. I lost my last consulting gig. I was living in my apartment in San Francisco. I was behind two months on my rent. Um, and I had very few people left in my life. And I picked up, uh, I sent an email actually to a friend and who worked at a healthcare organization and said, I need help. And I was at San Francisco general that afternoon. And those people were saints. They took, took me in and kept me there for hours just because I wasn't, I was worried I'd go use. And, um, that was my journey back. And I got myself into treatment. Um, I'm privileged. I have privileged friends. I was able to go have lunch with a friend the next day or two and ask to borrow $15,000 in 2008, which was a huge amount of money. Um, but she had it and she gave it and um, I was able to get into a treatment center and um, uh, I've been sober ever since. When you say you had your first drink at nine, was there, and we don't have to get into this if it's too personal, but was there some trauma in your life that precipitated um, a, maybe a desire to experiment with escapism? No, I mean, the, the nine-year-old situation was my 16-year-old sister had a party while my parents were out of town, and so they were afraid that, she and her friends were afraid that uh, I would tell my parents, so they gave me a six-pack of beer. And then warned. Did it work? It did. Uh, my parents came home. I lied to them. And, uh, uh, but then, um, you know, before that, my, uh, and then subsequently there was some trauma. My mom died when I was 10. She died the next year. And I'm it was sorry. A, it was a, it was That's a hard so death. So little. Yeah. And it was cancer. So it was ongoing. And she was sick when I, at nine years old. So that's very traumatic. And, and at the core, at the, the base of addiction is, uh, what we call adverse childhood experiences, ACEs. And, um, you know, losing a parent like that is very much true. 
within a year or two then, um, on top of that, I started going through puberty and I'm gay. And in the 1970s, to be gay, there was I didn't even know the word gay, right? And there was, so that was a traumatic experience as well. And um, I'm not blaming my addiction on either of those things, but they're, they're what fed it. I'm also Irish Catholic, right? And as I said, my family, it was, it was a big part of it. So Addiction is a biopsychosocial uh, disease, biopsychosocial disease. So biologically, some people are more prone to it. Irish, uh, people of Irish descent are. Um, psychologically, adverse childhood experiences. Something happens, some form of trauma occurs in your life. Not necessarily a single form of trauma, but just a, a lifetime of trauma. Um, and then so, socializing. Like I, I, you know, uh, coming out as a gay man, you know, alcohol is a big part of that. It's not coincidental that Stonewall, which is where the gay rights movement was launched, was a bar, right? And so for many, many years, gay people had to hide inside bars. That's where we could meet each other. And so alcohol is a hugely, uh, is a hugely prevalent part of, of being gay, coming out as gay. And so, um, uh, well, and it's a social lubricant, right? You can I, relax. Absolutely. And you can finally, I, I can I can imagine that you might finally feel able to express yourself in a way that you hadn't ever before. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and that's true true of a lot of folks. That said, most most gay people are not alcoholics or, ad, or right. addicted to substances. <laughs> I want to be really clear. Um so um in the context of why I started drinking at a young age, it was, as I said, um, uh, you know, it was just offered, it was available. Um, and secondly, there was some trauma. Um, and the combination of those two things, neither of my siblings who are older have addiction issues. So um, uh, th there's a lot we don't know, but what we need to understand is it's not a moral failing on my part. It's no, not that my brother not. and sister are stronger not. or better or whatever. Um, you know, my grand, both my grandmothers had drinking problems and things like that. So, well, and isn't it possible that maybe you got the gene and they didn't? Yes, absolutely. I mean, my sister struggles with substance use, and I just feel lucky that it didn't hit me in that way when I first started experimenting with alcohol. It just wasn't. I didn't need it right. in the same way. Exactly. Um, and, and you hear that over and over again in different families. Sure. So when you first started experimenting with drinking, did it did that hit you right away? That that did you like it right away? Oh yeah, absolutely. And and I think um it 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 empowers you at some level, it makes you confident at some levels. As you said, it was a social lubri lubricant and you know, when you grow up gay, um, you know, you know, and not uh, masculine by by you know normal definition, um, a poor way to describe it. But I wasn't a sports kid and stuff like that, and so I didn't. Um, and I had this secret as I, I progressed through my teenage years that I didn't want anyone to know about. And so I always had my guard up. This would allow me to interact with people with, with less fear. Yeah, that totally makes sense. And then I want to point out that I came out, uh, I graduated from college in 1983, which is the year that the AIDS epidemic really started to take off. And 1982 is when we actually described the word AIDS. Like uh, That must have been so scary. It and was, you were in San Francisco, I, which was the no, epicenter? No, I was, I was down in San Diego. It was absolutely the epicenter. And I stayed closeted for 10 years after that, right? But um, uh, for every gay person, particularly gay men, at the, in that time frame, that was a trauma in and of itself. I mean, I think so many men... 
people were dying right and left. Um, you know, uh, a friend of mine pointed out once, you know, pull out your cell phone. Think of all the contacts in here. And imagine if half of them died over a two-year period of time. That's what some people experienced during the, the AIDS epidemic. I didn't have that because I was closeted. I didn't have that level of gay, gay friends. But um, it was a traumatic, traumatic time. Um, and, um, you know, many people develop PTSD from that period of time, I think. And, and that's also a huge predictor of addiction. Well, right. I mean, they lost friends, they lost partners. And then in the meantime, as you're losing all these people, you probably feel like a sitting duck. Like, is this, when is this going to hit me? Exactly. And the parallels to the addiction crisis are, are profound. Talk about that. So we live in an age where, you know, 18% of Oregon's population have a substance use disorder. They're, they're addicted. Two thirds of them to alcohol. We rank last in access to treatment we can all just look out the window and we can see people that are suffering and part of their suffering is their substance use, whether they're addicted or not. They're using drugs to stay up at night if they're living in a tent. If they're, most people who are, have addiction are not living in a tent, they're, they're in an environment in which there's abuse or whatever the case may be, or they're the abuser. Um, and so um, I lost my train of thought on that one. Uh, uh, we're just talking about, um, it sounded like you were talking about where this, the state ranks and you talked about, I, well, I mean, the parallels I'm between the AIDS epidemic and the addiction epidemic. Sorry. That's where I was okay. sort of going with that, which is, um, you know, uh, at the height of the AIDS epidemic or in the beginning of the AIDS epidemic, government was not responding. And then they were responding in a really poor way. Like the San Francisco's budget on AIDS, the first five years of the epidemic was larger than the federal government's. And so, um, uh, arguably speaking, you know, Oregon is failing dramatically relative to this. So if you or uh, someone you love is suffering from addiction, you do not have access to the services you need. And that's, that is both uh, terrifying and it's also, um, uh, uh, so it perpetuates the, the crisis. Um, and I think that uh, there are a lot of people that are probably drinking and using drugs that don't want to but they don't see a pathway out of doing it. And so, um, yeah, I think that, that there's an inherent fear that on any given day I'm going to die. How did you manage to escape that so substance use disorder? I was 46 years old. I, I have a privileged background. I, you know, I didn't have a, I was able to function in life and, um, so when I was ready, I was ready. So were you a functional addict? Yeah, for the most part until so the last year or so. you kept your job and um, I took on housing? consulting gigs so that I, I didn't have to show up every morning at 9 o'clock. Uh, and, you know, it deteriorated. There's no doubt about it. By the time I went to treatment, um, I was unemployable uh, because I'd lost too many contracts. But um, the fact remains is that I had the the wherewithal to number one, reach out to someone who could immediately connect me with uh, professionals, number two, borrow the money. So I went to 28 day treatment. It was a pretty terrible treatment center, but, um, uh, and I knew that I needed to spend that first six months to a year, just that's the only thing I could really focus on. And so before I left the treatment center, I enrolled in outpatient at a, um, uh, a program that catered to uh, gay men in San Francisco. And so I spent three nights a week, either in a group therapy or one-on-one -on -one therapy. And then I also enrolled one night a week at the Zen Center and did meditation and recovery. And then I went to a 12-step meeting every day um, for the first year. And so, I, but I was, I was a mature adult 
who that understood like there is a pathway to recovery. These are the different mechanisms. I enabled myself to do it. And um, I was able to borrow money to pay my rent and things like that. So so many people don't have that. And if you're 25 years old. Most don't. Yeah. I mean, what what's the data? It's like most Americans don't have $400 exactly. in the case of an emergency. Most Americans. And they're right. paying off things like medical debt, going into bankruptcy due to things like, I think the number one reason is medical debt, um, servicing other forms of debt. And so. finding housing. Like I, I was able to keep my apartment because my friend paid the rent. Um, but finding recovery housing is, is really, it is the most critical part of you get out of treatment or you're an outpatient. Being in a sober living environment is really, really important. Um, and again, I went home and lived by myself in my apartment. And that's, that's not a great thing to do. Um, but again, I was 46 years old. I wasn't 26 years old. And I think all of that fed into it. And I had a set of friends still in my life who checked on me and supported me. I also, like, I threw myself into my recovery community, and I, um, you know, in our 12-step program, we talk about changing person, people, places, and things. So the folks that I used to drink with, dear friends, I stopped hanging out with. Um, I didn't go to bars. I, you know, um, um, I didn't keep things in my house. Uh, you know, I now have a refrigerator full of beer. If you come over to my house, you get offered a beer. But um, back then, how do you I, manage that? It's, uh, you know, from the day I walked out of treatment, the craving was lifted, which is not true for many people. Right. But I mean, that's rare, me. right? It's rare. And it's a gift from God to be perfectly candid. So this treatment center, which wasn't even that great, that worked for you that one shot. Yes. Yeah. And, and that's unusual God, too. Because it's so expensive. Yes. Yeah. And that was before the Affordable Care Act. So there are folks, if you're listening to this and you're in Oregon and you're on the Oregon health plan or you have of private insurance, there are options. I didn't have insurance. I'd let my insurance lapse, right? So um, we have more options here in Oregon relative to that. There's just no treatment centers to get into. And once you go to one treatment center, it's hard to get into another treatment center. So, And relapse is a big part of the journey of recovery. It's unusual for me that in 14 years I haven't relapsed. I've tried once or twice and... It's kind of mind-boggling that I failed when I tried, but um, uh, and it wasn't even my first year. Like when I was seven years sober, I wanted to relapse one night and uh, made an effort to get some drugs and failed. And then my higher power kicked in, and so and it was just fortuitous. Yeah, absolutely. But it's I, it's a great example of how this is a chronic condition, and you can't take it for granted whatsoever. If you're thirty years sober, thirty years in recovery you still need to be focused on um, uh, your recovery. It doesn't mean you need to continue with the same level of, of you know, going to a 12-step meeting every day or there's other meetings that are like called smart meetings or Wellbriety is Native American and Dharma recovery is a Zen-based recovery. There's all kinds of other options out there for folks um, that isn't 12-step based, but um, uh, you, you can't, uh, just all, all of a sudden one day stop thinking about it and think you're cured because you're never really cured. You're in remission. What does recovery look like for you today? Uh, I'm assuming you're not going to meetings every day, but are you going to meetings at all? What does yeah, that look like? I go to meetings once a week. Uh, you know, obviously with COVID, it made um, it a little more accessible in the sense that a lot of meetings went online, but that's a different experience. Totally different. Um, uh, so in recovery, uh, I restored my relationship with my family. I got my health back in, uh, in control. I put my career back on track. 
I got married to a guy I oh, met in an AA meeting. Um, wow. Uh, and uh, so life is great. It's kind of boring, but I'm, you know, I'm 60 years old. It's supposed to be boring. Uh, <laughs> I wouldn't say your life is boring. Look at what you're doing. I mean it in a really positive way. Right, you're not way. partying. Right? Yeah. Like I don't have. <laughs> you're not cr- living on the edge. I don't have crises going on. It's yeah. not, you know. Uh, the adrenaline is not high. And I'm not flying around the world partying like a rock star. Uh, but um, Summer not will been. not be spent in Meekin. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's going to be spent in our backyard <laughs> with our dogs, you know, uh, and that's all really good. Um, yes, I go to meetings. My husband goes to meetings more often than I do. Um, virtually all of our inner circle of friends that we spend any kind of day to day time with are people in recovery. Um, we have lifelong friends that um, we visit with and things like that. But um, our day to day friends are in recovery as well. And then the work I do, I like today, like I get to talk about my journey. I get to remind myself, which is really what a 12-step meeting is about, is hearing someone else's problems or their journey or raising your hand and talking about your own journey. And it just, you know, when you have a problem and you say it out loud, it puts it out there. And that's, for me, that's what my recovery is. I go to go to a, a, a meeting, whether it's 12-step or not, and first of all, I raise my hand and I say, hi, I'm Mike, I'm an alcoholic or I'm an addict. And um, that's my, out, my diagnosis. It's a reminder and I say it out loud and everyone hears it and I hear it that I have this chronic condition that I need to be focused on. And then I get to tell my story. I get to listen to somebody else's story, whether they're three days in recovery, in which case their life is kind of crummy and it's a great reminder of that. And they're, they, they tell their story of how they got there. And that's what I need to hear because it's 14 years since the last time I, my life sucked that bad. Um, but it needs, I need to be reminded of that. Um, or they have 30 years and they're talking about the challenges they've had in those 30 years relative to maintaining their recovery or the just life's challenges and how when a a parent died, they didn't drink or when a partner broke up with them, they didn't drink. Um, that's really important for me to hear. So, uh, I get to do my recovery in my work, but I also do make sure that I have, uh, my own personal recovery, um, that I take care of. Thank you for sharing all of this and being so vulnerable because I think what you're doing is an act of service every time you share that and sharing that today is an act of service to maybe listeners who are interested there. They may be an active substance use and they're interested in stopping and they're, they want to learn from somebody else's journey it's or really, somebody in recovery. It's a really important point. Thank you for saying that. However, in my recovery, being of service is a key part of it. And so we, you know, we have sort of a slogan that says, um, um, you can't keep what you're not willing to give away. And so if I'm not of service to other people, that's a, that's a huge cornerstone of 12-step programs is being of service to other people, being a sponsor of other people, helping people into recovery. And I get to do that every day. I get calls from mothers, parents, and people that are looking for help. So if people that are listening and think, I, I don't know how to do this on my own, think about who you know, whether, and it doesn't matter that you don't know them well or you haven't talked to them in 10 years, call, pick up the phone, call them and say, hey, I know that you are in recovery I, I need to figure out how to reduce the harm or eliminate the harm of substances in my life. Can you help me? You're asking that you're not asking them for a favor. You're you're playing to the you're strengthening their recovery by enabling them to help you. And so it's something it's really hard for people to understand. But if if you if someone asks me for help, they are doing me a favor as opposed to me doing them a favor. Say more about that. 
Well, just that it's a being of service. And when I can be of service to someone, it's getting outside of myself, putting my ego aside, um, and um, with humility, recognizing that um, I'm enabling them to have what I have. And um, uh, that, at the end of that, you feel stronger in your own recovery. You feel better about yourself. Um, your own self-esteem, is it, that's a healthy um, sort of renewal of your self-esteem or a, or a strengthening of your self-esteem, and that's hugely important. Um, I think another act of service that you're engaged in is this organization, starting this organization, Organ Recovers. What was the impetus for that? Right. So um, in 2014, the um, I had been John Kitzhaber, Governor Kitzhaber's campaign manager, and after the election, uh, the Oregonian did a four-part series on how badly Oregon deals with addiction. We have some of the highest addiction rates in the country, and we traditionally have ranked last in access to treatment. We're what, number two now? This year, we're number two in addiction and 50th in access to treatment. And uh, so I said to Governor Kitzhaber, uh, why is that? You're a medical doctor. We're sending you into your fourth term. And he said, you you know what, Mike? Every budget cycle is, is, uh, there's a, a, you know, only a big enough pie. And I've had every constituency group whether business or environmentalists or uh, faith leaders or whoever in here demanding more for their issue, I've never had people in recovery coming in and saying we need to address the addiction issue. And and I'm an old political organizer. That made sense to me. Like if no one's advocating for change, then change isn't going to happen. And so um, he then resigned, and so I went and focused on something else for two years. And then in 2017, um, started to uh, – work with people to launch Oregon Recovers to address this and to build power within the recovery community. And by the recovery community, I mean people like me in recovery. Um, What I like to say is the people who love us and the people who take care of us. So friends and family who are uh, sort of have to recover too because of their family members' uh, addiction issues. And then people in the workplace, the, the certified alcohol and drug counselors, the addiction doctors, the peer mentors, bring us together and build a um, unified constituency that um, uh, begins to advocate for change. Um, and that's what we did starting in 2017. We launched Oregon Recovers, and we now do annual walks for recovery every September, which is National Recovery Month, and we do it in Klamath Falls, Eugene, Medford, Bend, Portland. Um, uh, we're, next weekend, we have our the fourth annual Recovery Community Summit where we bring people all over the state together and we have panels on sex and recovery and, um, uh, uh, you know, po- alcohol policy and recovery and um, uh, a whole bunch of just really great conversations that are outside of people's 12-step program or whatever, their meetings with their therapist or whatever. But the goal is to um, create a cohesive sense uh, of, of identity as being in recovery, something to be proud of. And, um, you know, the Walks for Recovery were originally designed to be um, fundraisers for Oregon Recovers. You know, you sign up and then you raise money from your aunts and uncles. And, you know, uh, however, what we discovered was they're extremely powerful to build reconciliation in families. At the first Walk for Recovery in Portland in 2018, um, a woman came up to me. She was about 70 years old. And she said, Mike, I wanted to introduce myself. I flew out here from South Carolina to be here today. And I was like, <laughs> okay, that's wow. this is the first walk. It was I was like, why? And and she said she pointed to a young man and she said, That's my grandson over there. And he is six months sober. And I couldn't help him when he was in treatment, 
but I could fly out here and do this. I've told that story a thousand times and I, it, I get choked up every time. There's like incredible power in that moment and what, what that healing that that enabled that family to have. Um, and we got to put on T-shirts and walk through downtown Portland saying, I'm proud and in recovery. It's not unlike the gay rights movement where we walk through the streets to say we're proud because we've been told, we have been so stigmatized that we, we are, there's something morally wrong with us, you know? And so, um, uh, we, we do annual advocacy days in the Capitol and, um, we've had state senators say, or representatives say to us, I've never had anyone travel from my district in Eastern Oregon to meet with me in my office. And we bring three or four people who are either in recovery or working in a treatment center and they tell their stories. And what happens is these politicians start sharing their stories. My sister's in treatment right now, or my dad died of alcohol, alcoholism last month. Like, and so everybody's impacted by this and by building this community and, and having these events, we enable everyone, we illuminate that this is a crisis. Now we need solutions and we need politicians who are willing to drive towards solutions because when you rank 50th and you have the second highest addiction rate, it's not a matter of fine tuning existing programs, right? It's, it's not like operating on the margins. We need a new system of care um, that sort of defies the conventional, the, the, the status quo. Um, our current governor is an abject failure when it comes to leadership on many levels, but particularly around this. She declared addiction a public health crisis at our request in, in 2018 at the start of her reelection campaign and um, subsequently has done nothing. And so we are going to lose two to 3,000 people this year to drugs and alcohol. And those, those were, every one of those were avoidable, especially seven years into this governor's um, uh, uh, tenure. Um, it's on Kate Brown that these people are dying. And uh, uh, I, I can't say that loud enough or often enough. Well, and you, in fact, authored a letter September 2nd, 2021, applauding her for her COVID-19 focus, but saying, look, there's an even more fatal health emergency. I'm quoting from the letter that you wrote, and a number of people signed it, but it's my understanding you authored it. Correct. The addiction crisis, you say, since the onset of the pandemic, Oregon Health Authority projections suggests that more than 3,360 Oregonians have lost their lives due to alcohol and other drugs. And given the spike in overdose deaths, you say, and alcohol-related emergency room visits, that's a conservative number, a very conservative number. Yep. And you say comparatively, no, this is, this is September 2021 data, comparatively there have been 3,033 COVID deaths during the same time frame. Now, before we started recording, you were telling me that overdose number has skyrocketed while the, if you, you know, if you look at a COVID graph now with Omicron, et cetera, and vaccinations, of course, the COVID numbers have continued to, to decrease, right. but yet we're still in this state of emergency over COVID. And where is the uh, calories that need to be expended for this addiction crisis. It's inexplicable to me. I mean, subsequent to that, um, the state medical examiner gave to the governor and the legislature in January data that in 2020, the first year of COVID, alcohol-related deaths increased 73%. 73%. In that hearing, where it was a Zoom hearing, not one legislator stopped and said, wait, what? 
how, wait, what are we, what are we going to do about that? And that dr drug overdose deaths had increased 38%. We know that the preliminary data for 2021, it's still not completely available, is that drug overdose deaths then matched alcohol-related deaths. They alcohol-related deaths remained at that high level and drug overdose. So in two years, we saw a 75 to 80% increase in uh, substance-related fatalities. In the same time period, the legislature worked overtime to expand um, sales of alcohol. Uh, in an effort to help the restaurant industry and, the, more importantly, the alcohol industry, the trillion-dollar alcohol industry that ha saw profits skyrocket. Um, while we could not get them to increase access to treatment or increase uh, treatment beds, and under COVID there was a subsequent, there was a significant loss of treatment beds and detox beds, no effort to do that, but um, uh, you now can have cocktails delivered to your home so that your teenager can get them off the front porch. Um, uh, you can have five cases of wine shipped to you instead of two cases of wine. You can buy a keg at your local 7-Eleven. Like, uh, we dismantled 75 years of public health uh, 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 policy relative to alcohol sales um, during COVID, and we did nothing, nothing to do this. Now, we've moved, the legislature moved tons of money, like almost a billion dollars, into the behavioral health space, but a, a big, big chunk of that is going to mental health and not substance use disorder. And the, the substance use disorder money is going to, um, uh, is not going towards uh, increasing treatment capacity. So tell me about Measure 110, because I know that your group was a vocal opponent of Measure 110, and I heard you on Think Out Loud on OPB recently talking about um, the fact that, you know, you had opposed it, but now it's law. And now what's important is there are millions, what, almost $300 million sitting in an account that OHA hasn't distributed? 270, yes, correct. It looks, yeah, so um, this is from the Ben Bulletin, April 12th, 2022. It looks like $276 million. It's, it's what, it's sitting in an account? So, Right. We, measure 110 was designed to do two things, to, to reduce the number of black and brown people being arrested because they have addiction issues and they, they possess drugs. In that sense, it's been very, very successful. So mazel tov. That's, that's really, really important. And we're not talking enough about that. Um, and I say that as someone who opposed measure 110. That, like, that part of it I always thought was terrific. But I, the problem was is that then um, those folks that were not being arrested if when they were arrested previously, they had a pathway to recovery, the, the drug court system or the judge, um, because we had decriminalized drugs in 2017 down to misdemeanors and then attached uh, resource money to it so the judge could send someone to treatment. That was taken away. So then the other part of it was to set up this Oversight and Accountability Commission, which was 20 volunteers appointed by the uh, Governor Brown's administration, and they were to um, distribute $270 million, but to, not to treatment, which is what most people think it was going to, not traditional treatment. It was going to um, things that the Medicaid wouldn't pay for, so there couldn't be a federal match to. What are things like that? So it is harm reduction, needle exchange programs, uh, fentanyl testing, um, really, really important stuff, particularly for our homeless population. Um, but also for the larger population, for peer services, which are increasingly recognized as the most efficacious way to help people navigate um, into recovery and through the system of recovery, which is basically someone with lived experience working with an individual to get them 
um, to talk to the the um, the organizations they need in order to get into treatment, to move from treatment to recovery housing once they're in recovery housing. So um, it can be spent on peer services and then on recovery housing itself so that I get out of treatment. Like I said, you get out of treatment. We, like a sober living house? Yeah, sober living house, which we um, uh, have very few of in Oregon. We have a decent amount here in Portland, but the rest of the state, it's a, it's a desert. So that's all hugely important. It's basically focusing on the recovery part of um, uh, addiction. So Oregon Recovers hugely supports that, but it can't be spent on increasing access to actual treatment beds, detox beds, youth it residential beds. It cannot be spent on that. It cannot be spent on that. And it cannot be spent on prevention, which is the worst part of this, right? Like we spend half of what the CDC recommends that, that a state the size of Oregon should spend and we have the second highest addiction rate, so arguably we should be spending more than the CDC recommends on prevention. We're spending half of that, and none of the Measure One Ten money can be spent on prevention. It cannot be spent on re bringing back the, you know, we lost forty percent of residential treatment beds under COVID, sixty um, percent of youth residential treatment, and forty five percent of de detox. Um, it can't be spent on rebuilding that capacity. So which is how a lot of people that are listening to this think that Measure 110 was, was going to be spent on treatment. Arguably, harm reduction is treatment. Peer services is treatment. Recovery housing is treatment. And so that was the sort of liberty that the political consultants took on selling Measure 110 was that I believe those are forms of treatment, but when the voters voted on it, they thought they were getting treatment beds. Yeah, that was not outlined in the voters' pamphlet that it would be used for things like harm reduction do they lie? Um, I mean, you're a political the sin of omission. guy. Uh, so it was 17 pages intentionally so that it would be very opaque. Um, and uh, I, the advocates that supported it here in Portland, really good, decent people that saw money coming into organizations that were really underfunded by this, and they continue to be truly hugely supportive. And I, and I think that's great. Do I think the Drug Policy and Alliance in New York, which brought it here and, and put $5 million behind it. Their goal was not to solve the addiction crisis in Oregon. Their goal is to solve the war on drugs, which I support 150%. But um, this was a mechanism that didn't was not informed by um, substance use disorder experts or public health experts, legislators. Um, we, we asked them not to do it, structure it the way they did, and they didn't listen to us. Um, so, but it's, it's the, it's now the law. And so the problem here is that the Oregon health authority has the responsibility for implementing it. They want to blame these 20 volunteers that they handpicked and, and put on there. But those folks are not picked because they have a background in, in grant making process. How are they selected? So the, the measure 110 sort of detailed who needed the different types of people that need to be there. People who use drugs, people really adversely impacted by the war on drugs, uh, providers, peer mentors. And so it's a really powerful collection of people that have been meeting for over a year and a half, but they got no training on, um, any of this. And, you know, the governor put it when, when the, press started reporting on the fact that the money was being delayed. Originally, the money was supposed to be distributed in January, then in March, and now they're saying October, um, uh, you know, which will be a full two years after the voters passed it. But the voters never intended to say, okay, Governor Brown, Oregon Health Authority, we're going to take this off your plate. Let's give it to these 20 volunteers, and they should make all the decisions. 
the 20 volunteers, the idea was to center lived experience in the this program, but that the governor who directs Oregon Health Authority, and the Measure 110 is very clear, Oregon Health Authority appoints these people and is should be both thinking about who those leaders should be as well as then making them successful. And the governor had the audacity to put out a statement, I think, in April when it was clear that this was getting screwed up, saying it was not her job that the voters had given it to these 20 volunteers, totally not acknowledging that the 20 volunteers were handpicked by her people at the Oregon Health Authority. Regardless, she's the chief executive of Oregon. Like anything that's not working is her responsibility to fix. And she could have easily said, okay, this is designed really as we as we try this. And it was a new law. So it was always going to be hard to implement, right? Because new things are, and that's okay, right? And new profound things are. But she's never gone to the legislature. Oregon Health Authority has never gone to the legislature. She could convene a special session tomorrow and say, I need you to fix these three things so that we can do this more effectively. That level of leadership engagement does not exist. And I would urge people to go listen to the Think Out Loud from um, uh, Wednesday where I was on and then the director of Oregon Health Authority was on. And and he just obfuscates and it's like, this is this great new program that centers people with lived experience. I'm with lived experience. I run an organization with lived experience. I want us to be centered in the informing policy. I don't want to take responsibility away from our elected officials and the people that work for them because there's, there's no way to hold those 20 volunteers accountable. I have no mechanism for saying you guys are doing a bad job or you have no mechanism. There's no we have to hold our elected officials uh, responsible. And so when they say it's not my job, we really need to raise hell. What do you recommend as far as raising hell? What do we do? Do we write letters? Um, you know, I think this governor at some level is immune to public pressure. I think she's checked out. Um, and I think she she's afraid of this issue. And the people she surrounded herself with are not decision makers. I think you call your legislator. Um, and you you raise hell and and don't be afraid to be angry or um, passionate because there just seems to be this benign neglect to sort of dominating the whole thing. Um, and then pay attention to who you're voting for. Um, we have a governor's race and who the next governor is is going to be hugely important to fixing the addiction crisis. We have three candidates. Um, uh, look at the three of them and and look at their connections to the alcohol industry, the big pharma industry, the cannabis industry. Look at what they're saying about how to fix the um, addiction problem. And if they're not saying anything, then that should be of concern. What is, so your organization has a 12 step plan for addressing the addiction crisis. And we'll link to that on the show notes. We'll link to your website and the 12 step plan. When I was listening to you on think out loud, one of the things you hammered home was that, you know, if somebody is ready to go into treatment, um, particularly if they're on Medicaid or if there's, you know, one of the people that I'm looking at right now out the window that are are on the sidewalk, if they want to go to treatment today, it sounds like we don't have beds available for these people when they need them. That's correct. Um, uh, most places have a three to four week wait. And, and the, the That's problem too long, one day is too, one hour is too long. Right. Exactly. When, if someone has a moment of clarity that they're willing to go to treatment, then they need, you need to get them in that day or to detox. And then the other problem is that so many detox centers, the, the limited ones we have aren't aligned necessarily with a treatment center. So we detox people for 72 hours 
and then tell them they're on a waiting list for two to three weeks to get in a treatment. And actually, they're at more risk of killing themselves with, uh, with drugs and alcohol once they're detoxed, and then they go back out and they go back to using at the level that they stopped at before they detoxed. Um, uh, you're uh, particularly with opioids, the the overdose rate for people that have been detoxed but don't have access to treatment is sky high. So the system just it's not that it's failing; it's fractured and incomplete. We can deal with that. The one way is let's just fund 2,000 treatment beds for the next 24 months, right? So that um, as Portland works with its homeless population, as Medford works with its homeless population, as if a person says to a social worker, yeah, I'll go to treatment right now, they can put them in a car and take them to a treatment center, and, the, and they, they do the paperwork afterwards or to a detox center. The way to do that is pay for beds, not pay for butts and beds, which is what we do currently with insurance and with the Oregon Health Plan is treatment providers are reimbursed at a really low rate um, for a, per a person in their bed. So because of their fixed costs, they keep the bare minimum number of beds that they know they can keep full, right? So uh, whereas if they had three or four extra beds... They need some empty waiting for people exactly, who are ready. Exactly, and they need to be incentivized to do that. And um, uh, nobody is... Uh, doing that. Can we, do you know whether Metro can use some of this homeless tax money to do that? I do not know. I don't, I'm not familiar enough with the Metro bond money. Uh, Cause there's a lot of money floating out there. I mean, yep. it seems billions with a B. It seems like we should be able to do this if we have the right, it, it, you're saying maybe the right executive in charge to um, direct that because this is a statewide crisis. It's not just right. a Portland crisis. It's hugely important to recognize that that the the absence here is of a statewide strategy for dealing with this. So Multnomah Co County is victimized by Kate Brown's lack of leadership and the Oregon Health Authority's senior staff lack of leadership because pre-COVID, uh, Multnomah County had one treatment bed per 1,100 population. But Clackamas County had one per 12,000, uh, 12, and uh, uh, sorry, Washington County had one per 12,000, and Clackamas had one per 36,000. And so people that lived in Clackamas and in Washington counties would come and go to the treatment centers in Multnomah County, making the, the, uh, the wait list for Multnomah County residents as long as for other people. And it's because the state doesn't have a coordinated response. And, uh, you know, what I've, what I've come to realize is that the senior leadership at the Oregon Health Authority view themselves as the Oregon Health Administration and were, were hired and approached their job every day from the point of view of managing the crisis, so administering programs, and not the authority. They are the authority on Oregon Health, and they should be having a plan for ending the crisis and, and be almost evangelical about doing that um, instead of simply moving money around or staff around, or whatever the case may be. I want to be really clear. There are really great people that work at the Oregon Health Authority. Yeah, you said you know some of them. Yeah, and um, you know, but their their hands are tied behind their back because you have a senior cadre of leadership that are virtually all straight white men, none of whom uh, identify as being in recovery with mental health or addiction issues. They've been in this bureaucracy for years, and more importantly, they report to a governor who basically wants them not to create waves, not to change anything, not to solve things, just keep her name out of the press. This is Kate Brown's fault. I can't stress that enough. And I am a good liberal Democrat. I held a fundraiser for her in my backyard four years ago. And her benign neglect is killing people. 
Is it possible that OHA, in your view, could theoretically, like the people at the top, like Pat Allen, let's say, could they theoretically just kind of cut her out of this and start issuing orders? Oh, without doubt. Yeah. I mean, so, of course, you know, the the um, poop rolls downhill, but uh, obviously, and, and the buck stops with Kate Brown, and so I absolutely but, understand where you're coming from, but it seems like the OHA, too, could just, they could take the reins here, right? They could absolutely. I mean, they would probably argue that the legislature has put such boundaries on different pots of money, um, but uh, then call, have the legislature, the legislature could meet tomorrow to fix whatever they need, but no one is driving towards, okay, this is the crisis. Here are the things we need to happen. The legislature needs to do this. The governor needs to issue an executive order. The, the CCOs need to do this. Like there's, and there's nobody jumping up and down and saying, here's the solution. And if you listen to Pat on that thing, he's like, measure 110, it's about, you know, we're sharing power with people with lived experience. I don't want you to share your power or your decision-making. I want you to be thoroughly informed by people with lived experience because you don't seem to have any. But I want you to get up in the morning and, and, and work as hard as you possibly can or get out of the way and let someone that's in your office who you know can do a better job. Um, and it's, it's true of Steve Allen, the behavioral health director as well. Um, uh, a good, decent guy. But when I talked to him three or four weeks ago and said, what are you doing about the fentanyl poisonings? What are you doing about the 73% increase in, in alcohol-related deaths? He's the behavioral health director. Um, what are you doing about the loss of 45% loss of detox beds? And he wasn't aware of any of those things. And he said, Mike, until we figure out measure 110, I can't do anything else. And I just called How bull- long is it going to take them to figure out measure 110? Exactly. It was, it was <laughs> voted on a year and a half ago and it was written two years ago, right? Like, and it's because they don't, they're focused on ad- doing the least amount of administration of it, and they wanted the these volunteers to figure it out. Okay, I can see why they made that mistake, but they should have made that mistake a year ago, right? Not when all of a sudden in January, when all the, everybody had gotten their grant applications in, and they're like, oh, there's 400 of these. How are we possibly going to read all these? How are we going to negotiate contracts and memorandums of understanding? Like, the contracting process alone is... And I suggested the other day that they... They're, they go ahead and award it to all of the organizations, county by county, that applied for the money. But what's Measure 110's intent was to integrate those services county by county into what's um, uh, a behavioral health resource network, a BURN is the acronym. Um, and so the, the step, once they allocate, they identify which organizations are going to be part of that, that behavioral health resource network, they're going to have to negotiate an MOU between those different organizations. Well, that's going to take another two to three months. Right, a memorandum of understanding, and all these people are going to have to sit down at the table, write this thing out, and agree. Right, based on something they haven't necessarily done before. Right, like they, they, they would. What would make more sense at this juncture is. Can we ignore it? Could they theoretically ignore that? Oh yeah, that's their own decision to have the memorandum of understanding. So, oh, that is not in the bill. OHA came up with that. Well, the arguably the twenty volunteers did. But oh, all, I see. Okay. But but all they could do is vote to say no. Let's let's. I'm not saying don't do the memorandum of understanding. I think it's a really important thing. But give them money to these agencies. Let them actually start spending it and, and expanding their services or increase and it, uh, developing new services 
and then bring them to the table to figure out how they're going to integrate. But it's hard to say how you're going to integrate with someone if you haven't actually done the work before. So it was never a really good idea, but now because it's be, it's going to delay the distribution of funds, it's a really bad idea. Could Pat Allen or Kate Brown theoretically ignore the 20 volunteers and just start doling out money and directing it? I don't. I would not recommend that. I, I don't think that's true. Are you in true. touch with any of these volunteers? Sure. There, I know a lot of them. They want the money out the door. They're so can they vote to repeal their own memorandum of understanding in the in the meantime, and then they can work on that later? I believe that is true, yes. And so have you suggested that, and what's their response? I haven't, uh, but other people have. Um, and what is the response to that? The Oregon Health Authority staff argue against it. So the Oregon Health Authority is putting pressure yeah. on these volunteers that the Oregon Health Authority says are in control. Yes. <laughs> And that, and that when it, things aren't going right, they blame the volunteers, but then they hand, they um, constrict the um, opportunity for the volunteers to actually get this money out the door. Well, and that's what Pat, Pat Allen's doing because your, one of your main criticisms is there's just too much. Now this is all tied up in dysfunctional bureaucracy, which right. in my humble opinion is uh, an absolute might be the number one problem with this state on literally every level. And Pat Allen's retort was we, the memorandum of understanding is absolutely necessary to implementation of 110 and we cannot implement 110 without it. Um, and again, I'm not suggesting not ultimately require it. Sure. I'm, I'm you can a, do that down the delay. line. Exactly. And so, and it, he had no response to that. Uh, he had no response to that. Right. Well, right. His and, response was, well, I, I mean, to the extent he did, it was just sort of like um, the w literally nothing can be done until we <laughs> hammer out the memorandum of understanding, which I, I doesn't make sense to me. But well, he and, didn't. And the reason is he's not he's not looking at how are we going to. He's looking at implementing Measure 110. He's not looking at using Measure 110 as a tool to reduce addiction rates, increase recovery rates, and reduce overdose deaths, right? Like, he has no metrics that he's he's thinking about it. So what he does is he looks at Measure 110 and was supposed to create these behavioral health resource networks, and so he's going to do it the way to get... His goal is the behavioral health resource networks. If his goal was actually to save lives and to increase recovery, then he would modify the process for getting to the behavioral health research. He would, he would see it overnight. But that's the problem is he's administering the program and not addressing the crisis and recognizing the voters gave him a tool. They weren't replacing anything. Um, uh, uh, they weren't reprioritizing. The voters want an end to the addiction crisis. Measure 110 is supposed to be and is a powerful tool to, to, to um, uh, achieve that, but it's only a tool. There are other things that need to well, happen. Well, to achieve one aspect of that, right? right? Exactly. I mean, my under, based on your 12-point plan, I don't see, I, I see 110 touching minimal aspects of that. Correct. That's right. There was only, in the 12-step plan we have, which if people go to OregonRecovers.org, they'll find one step is fully fund measure 110 ASAP. The, the other steps are, are really they about- have nothing to do with what the 110 money can go to, right? Correct. It, because it's it's limited in what you can use it for. So so OHA, I don't know if you dug into this at all, but we have a little bit here. Um, OHA has doled out millions of dollars to nonprofits, 
uh, under the auspices of this is COVID money, using COVID money and just sort of doling it out if there's a tangential relation to the COVID for the nonprofit, they they write huge checks. Theo, it wouldn't be hard, would it, to link COVID to this addiction crisis? I mean, it's skyrocketed since COVID. It right. seems you could very easily link COVID to the addiction crisis and harness that insane amount of COVID money to some treatment beds or some detox facilities. So in, uh, it- yeah, so, and that did happen because um, so much of the system was based on, on on butts and beds or people walking through the door in outpatient programs or whatever, and that, because of COVID, uh, uh, declined dramatically. They did bail out an awful lot of organizations to do that. In my organization, we actually got some of that money to create the Oregon Recovery Network, which was an online service where you can go um, and look at um, uh, where you can access treatment and what insurance they take. And is it a youth program? Is it outpatient? And then we also developed a peer connection so that a chat bot pops up and says, do you want to talk to someone with lived experience? Um, the, our funding is not being renewed um, by OHA for that. Um, not surprisingly, we've been highly critical of them. But um, so COVID money did go. So do you just, think that's a backlash? Um, I don't know. Yeah. You know, I... Uh, I don't know. I doubt it. We're too small, but um, what I'll say is we're the only online, the only service that afford, that gives people an opportunity to access a peer without having to walk through the door of an organization, which is wrong. Like that, we shouldn't be the ones. We're an advocacy organization, but we set this up as COVID hit so that people would have a resource to find meetings, and it just expanded to all these other things. And so um, to not fund it right now while we're still setting up these other behavioral health resource networks is just crazy. But um, isn't there also a difference between bailing out the detox and the treatment centers and funding them right, so that you correct. have empty beds? Right. Couldn't they? Well, raising reimbursement rates because we have the lowest, some of the lowest reimbursement rates. And so many of the pre COVID, many of the treatment centers were having to do annual fundraisers to raise money for their operational expenses, let alone their sort of investment expenses, right? Like how to buy new beds and, you know, to put in new carpeting and stuff like that. So um, uh, COVID forced them all to shut down right away, like to, to limit the number of beds. They, most of them stayed open, but they, because of social distancing, you know, remember what those first six months were like. And so to that extent, OHA did move COVID money in to, to help them just keep their doors open. But now we have a workforce problem. Like we don't, we have people that have left, have been burnt out as certified alcohol and drug counselors and peer mentors, understandably. And there's no one, well, the treatment providers are all trying to recruit staff. Oregon Health Authority doesn't have an Office of Workforce Development. They don't have a director of Office for, of Workforce Development. As I told Steve Allen, the behavioral health director, like when he was saying, Mike, we're moving money to the different providers so that they can recruit more staff. And I'm like, Steve, they don't, they're not Google and Facebook. They don't have an HR department that's out there for 18 months advertising, come join, you know, this. They, the Oregon Health Authority needs to get more people certified as alcohol and drug counselors and peers who can then be allocated and, and go into the work, uh, uh, the, the providers can, you know, compete for them. But right now we have a shrinking workforce. If we ever do ex- hand out this $270 million to, uh, uh, from Measure 110. And there'll be more. Exactly. We're just continuing to collect, Is what is it, cannabis tax money? Yeah, no, it's going to go up. The thing is, it's going to be gasoline on the fire because 
um, most of the positions, most of that money is going to go towards arguably hiring more peers and more um, uh, harm reduction folks and more housing, opening more housing. Um, <laughs> but we don't have the workforce currently to do it, right? And so um, uh, absent recruiting more people into the pipeline, distributing this money is actually setting these organizations up to fail because they're going to get this money and then they can't hire anyone so they can't spend it. Um, and so, so OHA could theoretically create a headhunting department yes, to find these people. Absolutely. And There's they're pre, not doing that. Pre-COVID, there were about 2,000 people who had been certified as alcohol and drug counselors that let their certification lapse. And couldn't they do, can they do that with 110 money? Can they, can they create like a headhunting department to find these people with 110 money? Because arguably some of that money, um, some of these people could be, um, not peer support. They right. could be harm reduction people. They could Absolutely. serve in var various roles that would relate to 110. Right. So OHA gets about $25 million dollars. That, like it, it the, the total amount I think for this biennium is three hundred and three million dollars. They're distributing two hundred and seventy six. The balance goes to OHA to staff it. So they have twenty five million dollars to support this. And of course, they'll point 20, at the volunteers and they'll right. say, "Well, that's the volunteers' job. They're they're tasked with administrating all this." Well, these, like you said, these volunteers have absolutely no experience and no. A framework or ability to really right. <laughs> implement this. And and let's be let's be fair to OHA. They've been through a pandemic and Oregon did a great job during the pandemic. Uh, uh, no matter how people feel about masks and all the other stuff, our numbers are really sound compared to the rest of the, the country. Isn't it possible though that that's just because we have a healthier population it, than like the South? I think there are I a mean, lot. I mean, we're thinner. We're... Yeah, we do. We don't have subways that, like in New York, um, you know, we don't have huge Tenement housing projects, housing, right. right? You know, like, so there's all kinds of arguments to be made, but we took action and we did good things. And the Oregon Health sure, Authority staff were given all this money and they distributed it. I'm sure we're going to find that they sometimes poorly, I, but they're, bur I get that they're, they're burned out. The problem is, is a lack of leadership and a lack of vision of, how there's no the behavioral health director and his boss the the um, director of Oregon Health Authority are not trying to figure out how to solve the addiction crisis. They're trying to figure out how to administer all this money. And if you're only focused on the administration of the money, you're not thinking strategically about oh okay. In addition to distributing two hundred seventy seventy million dollars, we need to anticipate how many positions is that money going to fund? How are we going to help? recruit people into those positions. There's nobody thinking that way. And that's the problem. And it, it goes with Kate Brown views herself, I think, as a 91st legislator. She does, She's not comfortable with exercising power. She has no vision for how to use power. Um, and so she has surrounded herself with a bunch of managers. And so as a result, across the, to your point earlier, many of the bureaucracies are not driving towards outcomes. They're driving. Yeah, there's no metrics. There's no data. There's no accountability. Right. right. Exactly. And they're simply trying to administer what they have and maintain the status quo. And when you have a crisis like the addiction crisis, maintaining the status quo is killing people. They're literally dying right now. Correct. I mean, you were, I'm sure you saw some of them driving here. You'll, you may walk past them on the way back to your car. The whole thing is just tragic. And Mike, you're a busy guy. I know you got to go, but I really appreciate you coming in and, 
And I, the second piece of that is I really appreciate you sharing your personal story because I know you're, um, you've got this fabulous organization and you're a great advocate for that. But then, of course, there's the personal piece too, and thank you for sharing that with us. Well, I appreciate being asked, and as I said earlier, um, when I get to tell my story, when I get to talk about what we need, that I get to be of service, and that strengthens my recovery. So I, I thank you for giving me that opportunity. Thank you so much for joining us on Rational in Portland. As you've heard, we don't have ads on this podcast. We don't make money off of it. If you want to support us, you can tell a friend, tell a neighbor, link to the episodes that you like, share them with family and friends. And I really appreciate all of you for supporting us and supporting this journey to find out what's going on in the state of Oregon in the city of Portland, and to hear from other Portlanders about their experiences. Thanks again. We'll see you next time.